0: A showdown is defined as a final test or confrontation intended to settle a dispute. Some historical showdowns you may be familiar with are the duel between Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr, the Battle of Berlin between Germany and the Soviet Union, William Wallace leading Scotland in the first war of Scottish independence against England, and the showdown of the OK Corral between the Art Brothers and the Clanton McClory clan. Some famous movie showdowns are Neo versus Mrs. Smith, Mr. Smith in The Matrix, Luke Skywalker versus Darth Vader in The Empire Strikes Back, Rocky Balboa and Ivan Drago in Rocky IV, and my all-time favorite showdown is at the end of the movie, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly with Clint Eastwood. There's also showdowns that occur in our own lives. You know, maybe with our parents, maybe our siblings, could be with our children, our bosses, our coworkers, You know, maybe with people we just don't get along with, or even sometimes it could be with our friends, and sometimes even friends within the church. But we also have showdowns with Satan and the powers of darkness, which we call spiritual warfare. You know, spiritual warfare is not exclusive to this day and age. It's been going on since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. And God versus Satan is the greatest showdown of all time. But the great thing is we know who the winner is. You know, we see in Revelation that God and the Lamb, Jesus Christ, are victorious over Satan and the powers of darkness. But many showdowns still happen in this world today because Satan wants to take as many with him as possible. You know, Satan's had showdowns with all the disciples, you know, missionaries through the ages, etc. Historically, every disciple except for John was martyred for their faith, and other church leaders and missionaries down through the ages were also martyred, losing their lives for their faith. But here's what we can know for sure. God had a plan and purpose for every one of their lives. Just like God protected Abraham, Isaac, and we're going to see today that he protected Jacob from harm, he protected every one of the disciples, every one of the missionaries, every one of the church martyrs from harm as they were fulfilling his role that he had given them in the plan and purpose for this world. God was faithful to them in life, and He's faithful. he was faithful to them in death. And the same is true for us today. God has a plan and purpose for our lives. And as we, God's people, fulfill his plan and purpose, he will protect us from harm until our purpose on this earth is completed and we join him in eternal glory in heaven. And that brings us to our big idea this morning, that God protects his people from harm as they fulfill their part in his plan and purpose. As we let that big idea sink in, let's uh, dedicate our study of God's word to him this morning with a word of prayer. Let's bow our heads. Uh, dear Heavenly Fathers, we open your word this morning. We call upon your Holy Spirit to guide us and teach us. We pray that you would give us ears to hear and give us eyes to see what you want us to learn and then what you want us to share with those we come in contact with this week. In Jesus' name, amen. There's four points to the sermon this morning. The first is pursuit. And we're going to be in Genesis chapter 31, verses 22 to 35 but this section is verses 22 to 25 you can follow along as i read this is what god's word says on the third day laban was told that jacob had fled taking his relatives with him he pursued jacob for seven days and caught up with him in the hill country of gilead then god came to laban the aramean in a dream at night and said to him be careful not to say anything to jacob either good or bad Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country of Gilead when Laban overtook him. And Laban and his relatives camped there too. So last time we were in Genesis, we saw that Laban had gone away to shear his sheep. This task was important for a shepherd. It would have taken a lot of time and a lot of manpower. The ancient texts state that depending on the size of the flock, it could have taken between 150 and 300 men three days to complete. And this explains a few, few things like Why did it take three days for for Laban to hear that Jacob and his family had fled? You know, why did Jacob take this opportunity to leave? And why Laban had relatives around that he could take with him to pursue Jacob? Taking relatives with him suggests that Laban was planning to harm Jacob, or at least intimidate him to return. They were told that Jacob headed for the hill country of Gilead, and that's where Laban caught up with him. The phrase, a distance of seven days, was a general phrase meaning a considerable distance. According to commentaries, there's no way that that Jacob could have made it from Haran to Gilead in only a 10-day period, considering he had wives, children, servants, and flocks that he had with him. It may have also taken some time for Laban to go back home, you know, to get all these people and all these things organized to pursue Jacob. And that may have been when when Laban realized that his household gods were missing. But nonetheless, Laban and his men finally overtake Jacob in the hill country of Gilead. We can kind of vision this as they're each on opposite hills, on opposing hills. They're ready for the showdown that they, they both know will take place. Next, God comes to Laban in a dream, and he warns him not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. We can notice a few things here as well. First, Laban is referred to as an Aramean. This would have reminded the first hearers that Aram was the enemy of Israel and Judah. So Laban is not now to just a relative of Jacob, but he's also his, his enemy. Second, coming to Laban in a dream at night, that reminds us that of God coming to Abimelech in Genesis 20, verse 3, warning him not to touch Sarah or he would die. And lastly, the phrase good or bad, is the same phrase that Laban and his father said to Abraham's servant when he came to find a wife for Isaac, as Jean read this morning. Most of the time, opposites in Scripture express totality. So Laban was not to do anything to stop Jacob from returning to Canaan. And the similarities between events in Abraham's and Jacob's lives prove that Jacob was the successor to Abraham and Isaac as the covenant carrier. It was then told a second time that Jacob pitched his tent in the hill country of Gilead, and that Laban and his relatives overtook him and camped there as well. Here, Jacob is portrayed as alone, while Laban has relatives with him. Jacob is outnumbered, especially when it comes to fighting men, and his plight is dire. The words that are used here are are reminiscent of battle, pursued, pitched his tent, overtook, and camped. They all give a connotation of war. So now the players in this drama are set for the showdown to start. And that brings us to the second point this morning, which is pointing the finger, found in verses 26 to 30. Again, this is what God's word says. Then Laban said to Jacob, what have you done? You've deceived me and you've carried off my daughters like captives in war. Why did you run off secretly and deceive me? Why didn't you tell me so I could send you away with joy and singing to the music of tambourines and harps? You didn't even let me kiss my grandchildren or my daughters goodbye. You have done a foolish thing. I have the power to harm you. But last night the God of your father said to me, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Now you have gone off because you've longed to return to your father's household. But why did you steal my God's? So the showdown begins with Laban pointing the finger and accusing Jacob of a couple of crimes. You know, the scene takes on a courtroom-like drama where we have Laban as the plaintiff, Jacob as the defendant, and, and all, all the relatives are the jury. Laban is looking, for, looking to convict Jacob in the court of popular opinion. So he begins with charging Jacob with deceit and kidnapping. He accuses Jacob of leaving his household without telling him and carrying his daughters off like captives in war. Again, we can notice some important things about this verse. What have you done reminds us of the words that Jacob spoke to Laban after his wedding night with Leah. You know, it's like the pot calling the kettle black. You know, as Laban seems indignant that, that he would be deceived by Jacob. We also see that Laban is continuing with the militaristic and combative rhetoric. He accuses Jacob of carrying his daughters off like captives in war more like a cattle rustler stealing from his ranch. And we also notice that they are Laban's daughters and not Jacob's wives. You know, again give us a sense that Jacob's wives were not his to take and return home to Canaan with. In verses 27 and 28, we should almost laugh out loud as Laban says that if he knew that Jacob was leaving, he would have sent him away with a celebration. You know, a feast was singing with tambourines and harps. He complains that Jacob didn't even give him a chance to kiss his grandchildren or daughters goodbye. Can you see the Laban that we know in our scripture throwing a party for Jacob and his family to depart for Canaan? Nah, I I can't. Which I believe is the point of the author. Laban has done and will do everything in his power to keep Jacob in his household and not allow him to return to his father. But how do we reconcile that Laban was upset with Jacob for leaving without telling him, with God telling Jacob it was time for him to return to Canaan. There's still this sense that Jacob went about leaving the wrong way. You know, he should have gone to Laban and told him that, that God said it was time for him to return. He should have trusted God to keep Laban from stopping him. You know, now he's in a serious predicament. He's in a showdown with Laban. There's hostile parties threatening God's purposes and God's covenant plan. You know, he still has not learned to completely trust God, to protect him from harm, as he was fulfilling the plan of purpose that God put on his life. I like what Wiersbe says. Life is not easy. But if we submit to God's disciplines and let him guide us in our decisions, we can endure the difficulties triumphantly and develop the kind of character that glorifies God. The God of Jacob never fails. That brings us to our first next step on the back of your communication card, which is my next step is to submit to God, allowing him to guide my thinking and decisions so I can endure difficulties and develop a godlike character. <clears throat> we see at the end of verse 28 that Laban, you know, he thought that Jacob was a foolish person doing foolish things. And, th- and that would have been the strongest uh, of rebukes by Laban on Jacob. And then Laban tells Jacob he has the power to harm him. But God, God of Jacob's father, told him the previous night to be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Laban is threatening not only Jacob, but his whole family. You know, the reference to the God of your father continues to show the spiritual differences between Jacob and Laban. And it's interesting, you know, Laban has just lit into Jacob about leaving him, but he doesn't seem worried and about not saying anything good or bad to Jacob as God commanded. And the commentators seem to agree that the moratorium God placed on Laban wasn't about speaking, but about doing harm to Jacob. Laban has chased Jacob down, and we can only imagine what he would have done if God had not I- intervened. Illegally, he could have taken his daughters away, he could have put Jacob in prison, and in fact, he, he, he probably could have killed him for these crimes. The only power that can save Jacob from Laban's wrath is God. God protected Jacob from harm as he was fulfilling his part in God's covenant plan and purpose. So now, there at the end, Laban seems to conclude that Jacob's foolishness was just homesickness. He just wanted to return to his father. But then he lodges a second accusation. He points his finger at Jacob for stealing his gods. We can only surmise which accusation is more serious to Laban. He spends five verses accusing Jacob of deceit and taking his daughters and grandchildren away, but only one verse on the accusation of theft. In fact, that may have been his play all along, realizing he couldn't keep Jacob from leaving for Canaan based on God's intervention. But if Jacob was convicted of theft, you know, he might have more of a legal standing, forcing Jacob to stay. In fact, the household gods may have been the real reason that Laban pursued Jacob. The fact that Laban wanted these gods back shows his faith was in idols and not in the god of Jacob. So what were these household gods? These gods would have been small statues that would have been placed around the house. Laban would have believed they brought him good fortune with his flocks and his crops, etc. In fact, you remember, about a month ago, it may have been the way that he divined that he had been blessed by God because of Jacob. Their possession may have also had something to do with who received the family inheritance. So we can see how much he may have depended on them as he went after Jacob to get them back. And now that the accusations have been leveled, Jacob gets a chance to answer the charges. And we see this in the third point this morning, called protest, found in verses 31 to 33. This is what God's word says. Jacob answered Laban, I was afraid because I thought you would take your daughters away from me by force. But if you find anyone who has your gods, that person shall not live. In the presence of our relatives, see for yourself whether there is anything of yours here with me. And if so, take it. Now, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen the gods. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants. But he found nothing. After he came out of Leah's tent, he entered Rachel's tent. So Jacob answers the first charge with truth instead of lies and deception. You know He was afraid that Laban would take Rachel and Leah away from him by force. And again, we continue to see this combative war theme. The entire time Jacob has lived in Laban's household, they've been struggling, uh, struggling with each other. There's been strife between Jacob and Laban, Jacob and Leah, Rachel and Leah, and even Rachel and Jacob. And then Jacob answers Laban's second a- accusation, protesting that he had not stolen his gods. In fact, he is adamant that there is nothing of Laban's in his camp. He gives Laban permission to search his entire camp. And if the gods are found, then that person who stole them will be put to death. And if anything on Laban's is found, he can have it back. So now imagine the first hearers. When they find out what happened to Laban's gods, you know, it's Rachel. She's the one who's stolen the gods, and Jacob doesn't know it. Talk about High drama as, again, this is the capability of ruining God's plans and purposes for his people. That brings up some questions. Why did Rachel steal her father's gods? Why didn't she confide in Jacob about the theft? And what happens when Laban discovers that Rachel has taken those gods? There are a number of reasons why Rachel may have stolen her father's gods. First, as she was preparing to leave for Canaan, Maybe she wanted the familiar gods of her childhood to worship. You know, we already know that Laban has not embraced Jacob's God, but maybe Rachel has not either. Seems that Jacob has not had much of an influence on Rachel. This also reminds us that during Jacob's time in Haran, God has been mainly silent. Second, maybe she was getting back at her father. In In chapter 31, verses 14 and 16, Rachel and Leah talk about how their father has sold them and used up their bride price that he received for them and not gave them a thing. They feel that they have no share in their father's inheritance, and he treats them like foreigners. And that brings us back to the question of what were these gods. The Hebrew word for for the gods is teraphim. The Newsy tablets indicate that whoever possessed the teraphim was the proper heir to a father's inheritance. It seems that when Jacob first arrived, Laban had not fathered any sons of his own, so that he would, have adopted, he would have adopted Jacob as his son. But this would also explain why Jacob felt the need to stay for 20 years with Laban. Once any biological sons came along, Jacob's status would have been reduced, and he would have no longer have been Laban's chief heir. He would still have a legal standing to inherit, but, as a, but he would have inherited his adopted son rather than a hired hand. but Rachel, believing that Laban would probably never graciously hand over anything to Jacob, takes matters into her own hands. She's forgotten that Jacob already has his birthright back in Canaan and does not need Laban's. We can only surmise why Rachel didn't tell Jacob she had stolen the gods, but it's probably because he would not have approved. Again, there is strife between Jacob and Rachel as well. If you remember, first she blamed him for not being able to have children. And now she's keeping secrets from him. We're left with the question of what happens to Rachel when Laban finds that his gods were in her possession. He first searches Jacob's tent, because he's pretty sure that that's where they're at. Then he goes into Leah's tent, which shows us that he didn't trust his daughters to begin with, which makes all his showy words early about a celebration and goodbye kisses even more shallow. He then goes into the maidservant's tents and searches from the gods, but he finds nothing. And lastly, he comes to Rachel's tent. And again, the tension and the drama is thick because the author's already told us that Rachel has taken them. It's only a matter of time now before Laban finds them, and then what will happen? That brings us to the fourth point this morning, which is powerlessness. Found in verses 34 and 35. Again, follow along as I read. It's what God's word says. Now, Rachel had taken the household gods and put them inside her camel's saddle and was sitting on them. Laban searched through everything in the tent but found nothing. Rachel said to her father, Don't be angry with me, my Lord, that I cannot stand up in your presence. I'm having my period. So he searched. But could not find the household gods. Now, the narrator tells us exactly where Rachel was hidden, fa- her father's gods. She's put him inside her camel's saddle, and he's sitting on them. This would have been a red flag for, for the first hearers, because for the Israelites, a camel was unclean. Then we're told that Laban searched through Rachel's tent and found nothing. The word for search is the same word as foaming around in the dark like a blind person, which reminds us of Isaac, almost blind and not being able to tell Jacob from Esau. Laban is seemingly as blind as Isaac and is deceived as well, but this time by his own daughter, which would have been a final humiliation that his own daughter was treating him in this disrespectful way. Now comes the ultimate disrespect, not only of her father, but the real point of the passage about her father's gods. Rachel probably in a sweet voice tells her father she can't stand in his presence because she's having her period. The King James says, she says, the custom of woman is upon me. This is probably a subtle retaliation for Laban's deception of, of Jacob for saying that the custom of the day was to marry off the older daughter first. It would also have been a second red flag for the first hearers, because anything that a woman sat on while she had her period would be considered unclean. And this is the point. Laban's gods would have been seen as unclean, worthless, and powerless to keep themselves from being contaminated. Again, Laban's gods could be stolen, They could be hidden, they could be set on. They were inferior to Jacob's God, our God, the one true God. We're told two times that Laban searched and found nothing. Laban is also powerless. He's powerless to do anything to Jacob, and he's powerless to thwart the plans and purposes of God, of the God of Jacob's father. God protected Jacob and Raban protected Jacob and Rachel from Laban and his schemes because they were his covenant people. He would continue to protect them as long as his will, his purposes, and his plans were being fulfilled through them. Now as we come to the end of our scripture, we're reminded once again of the promises and providence of God. First, the principle that God keeps his promises is seen as he provides for and protects Jacob and his family. Even Rachel, stealing her father's gods, did not keep God from protecting his people. Second, the principle that God is in control. The providence of God is the working of God's sovereignty to continually uphold, guide, and care for his creation. Belief in the providence of God reminds us that our world and our individual lives are not determined by chance or fate, but by God's plans and purposes being worked out behind the scenes by his people. We can trust that God will protect us, just as he did Jacob and Rachel, when we allow ourselves to be used by him to fulfill his greater plan and purpose for this world. That brings us to the second and the last next step, which is to trust God to protect me as I allow him to use me to fulfill his plan and purposes to pursue, grow, and multiply disciples. As the praise team comes forth to lead us in a final song, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Sovereign Lord, we thank you for your promises to us and for your providence as you work out your plans and purposes for this world and for us individually. Lord, I pray that we would submit our thinking and our decisions to your will in order to develop a godlike character. I also pray that we would trust in you to protect us from Satan in this world as we allow you to use us to fulfill your plans and purposes. In Jesus' name, amen.